Welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and thank you for joining us on this episode with John Navazio, The Importance of Seeds. This is a subject that I have been wanting to feature ever since we started the podcast some four years ago. John Navazio is the author of the incredible book, The Organic Seed Grower, A Farmer's Guide to Vegetable Seed Production. I met up with John in Portland, Maine, shortly after the holidays, to talk about his lifelong relationship with seeds and their importance. But first, a word from our sponsors. Johnny Selected Seeds is a proud sponsor of this episode of the Nature Revisited podcast. For more than 50 years, Johnny's has supported farmers and gardeners with superior seeds, tools, and information to help ensure their growing success and feed their communities and families. The research farm is the heart of Johnny's, where they trial thousands of varieties and tools every year to ensure that only the best products are offered to growers. Their breeding program uniquely focuses on introducing varieties that meet the needs or solve challenges mixed market, small farmers, and avid gardeners face. Visit johnnyseeds.com for innovative, new varieties and time-tested favorites to grow this season. You can also browse the online growers library for a wealth of free educational resources. The employee owners at Johnny's look forward to growing with you. So, John, let's start at the beginning. When did you first become interested in seeds and seed production? I grew up as a suburban kid in the Washington, D.C. area, Alexandria, Virginia, in the 60s and 70s. Never set foot on a farm till I was 17. Heard about farms from my grandmother and my great aunt. Their dad was a, worked in a factory. He had a little side job growing asparagus and strawberries. And boy, they talk about that, and they talk about the horses they had and the cows. And it, it just seemed so real to me. And that was right at the time when America was coming awake. Baby boomers were becoming awake to the back-to-the-land movement in the 70s. So it all fit perfectly, me hearing their stories and realizing what a train wreck trajectory America was on. It was like, that's how it happened. My mom was like, you're going to college. There ain't no way you're getting out of it. So I said, okay, I'll go to ag school then. It was like, what? Suburban kid going to ag school. But guess what? In the early 70s, all of a sudden, half of the students in ag school were suburban kids like me. Within seven or eight years, of going to ag school and working for a while for the Forest Service, finally getting out in the western United States, out to real rural America, I became an organic farmer in Oregon in the early 80s. Worked with some really phenomenal pioneers in the organic vegetable movement. We were in western Oregon. Boy, you could grow winter crops. First time I ever saw a kale plant back in the 80s when Barely anybody was growing kale, but man, they were cold hardy. You could grow leeks and kale all winter. It led me to thinking about, wow, where are all these different vegetables coming from? How come a hundred-year-old heirloom's better than a modern 
tomatoes sometimes. How, how come these old German leeks are, even though they're short and squatty, are much more cold hardy than these more modern leeks? And it really opened that door to me thinking about the genetic differences. And I went, oh, that's right. There are plant breeders that actually breed this. One day, one of the pioneers of the organic seed movement, he showed up to visit from Southern Oregon, from the uh, Rogue River Valley. They wanted to see how we were so successful at growing lettuce 10 months of the year and supplying more organic lettuce to that part of Oregon than anybody else in the state was. And he and I got off on a little, just a little side path, and I was showing him the watermelons we were growing and some of the, hey, I said, hey, you wanna go eat some melons? We had this great Japanese yellow fleshed melon, and instead of spitting them out on the ground, he spit them into his hand. He said, this is really good. I'm gonna take some seeds home with me. I was like, what? You buy seeds out of an envelope, but I was already starting to think about, well, seeds come from plant breeder. They come, you know, our ancestors used to save their own seeds. It kind of really, that was the moment that day that uh, it lit the, the thing for me and I started to become interested in seeds and maybe I start saving some seeds of my favorite old fashioned tomatoes or watermelons or something. So that was really the beginning. And then from there, it was a several year process. What made you decide to dedicate a lifetime to the study of the craft and art of seed production? And what has been your focus? I've now realized I have two faces in the world of agriculture and seeds, essentially. First and foremost, my day-to-day -day vocation is I'm a plant breeder. I develop new varieties for real farmers to use to deliver the goods, for them to be able to grow good crops. But through that, to be a plant breeder, you have to have a absolute seminal connection with growing the seeds, right? Because the seeds are just the delivery system. And you can't deliver the goods unless it's good seeds, right? And I've always been fascinated with the fundamentals of the craft part of growing plants. So I guess I should also say and give a little credit and shout out to good old Kent Whaley and some of the other pioneers in the seed movement. I had become a, a member of Seed Savers Exchange. So once I started to learn about plant breeding, having always been from day one with this, having learned about agriculture from my grandmother and my good old Aunt Millie, who grew up on that little two-acre farm in Staten Island, New York, I realized that there was just a certain visceral thing to that and that seeds were really, wow, the seeds have a connection to the past. It's like this energy. It really is, it's like they're carrying this this ancient message to us, really, this remnant of the past that's come up through all uh, this history of nature and evolution and how they've just been impacted by everything that goes into any life forms surviving and reaching the next step in its evolution. So seeds became very important to me. My goal 
right from the start was to get closer to this ancestral piece of the whole thing. Talking to all the old timers and learning as much as I could and reading, reading, reading in those days, you know, pre-computers, we had to find old books in the library and read about the traditions. And there's so much good stuff that's written. Anyone who's truly interested in this, just take time to go back and read books. Don't expect to find it all on Google. So my goal really from the start was to carry on this tradition. It seemed somehow so real. To really encapsulate what I've learned over the past 40 years of doing this is it's just a continuum of our true connection with nature in an agricultural way that's, that supports almost every human on earth, right? There's still a few hunter-gatherers out there. How do I keep this tradition alive? Because I realized so many of the modern things in agriculture were kind of going astray and were losing some of the value. You know, it was so geared to the modern industrial model of large-scale production into the supermarket. So as I learned about the guy spitting seeds into his palm of his hand to then starting to save my own seeds and starting to realize some of the plants were better than others whenever I grew out a lot of seed and some were, some did better, some tasted better, some weren't quite as good and I could select them just like my ancestors did. And that in fact was plant breeding and that I could learn all of the wonderful modern things that our scientific predecessors have learned over the past few hundred years and put that all together it just became obviously something that I want to do, both its uh, vocation and avocation. Can you describe the feeling or some of the magic that you feel when you are working with seeds? There's, oh, there's so many aspects that are magic, but certainly when I look at a seed, I rarely think about it as just a seed. What I see is, especially if it's a seed that I have grown or we've produced, I see its ancestors and I see its, I see magic encapsulation of the life form that's moving through the generations. So I always look at it, you know, to not be too mystical, I look at it and think, I know what that carrot looks like. I know how good that carrot tastes that produced that seed. And I know we're selecting it for this. And I know it's going to be even a stronger plant next generation when we select a bit more. Because not only are we always thinking about how it tastes and how I love my cooked carrots and how it does in a lamb stew. I think about all of that, but I also think about how strong is that plant going to be in the field? How well is it going to produce ample pollen and make good, strong flowers that produce a high yield of seeds so that farmer that grows it is going to grow it? So I see its past, its present, its future kind of all in one. It's like, how do I help move that along? You are one of the co-founders of the Organic Seed Alliance. Why was that organization started? 
and what is its mission? Organic Seed Alliance was formed in 2003, 20 years ago. At the time, working part-time for Abundant Seed Alliance, and I also had my own little seed business. And I became good friends with Matthew Dillon, who was executive director at Abundant Life Seed Foundation in Port Townsend, Washington. Forrest Schomer, who founded it, was one of the pioneers of growing seed and having essentially a seed bank, at least in North America, to retain ancestral seeds and pass them along. It was truly a seed foundation, a seed bank, but with a very committed object of getting the seeds out to people. And they had a wonderful little catalog, always loved it. And he and Kent Whaley at Seed Savers Exchange and Rob Johnston, who founded Johnny's Selected Seeds, was also someone who got many people in the 70s and 80s to think about seeds for the first time differently than just something you went to the store and bought in a package, you know. The long story short is Abundant Life Seed Foundation, we had a fire in in uptown Port Townsend and it burned up most of our seed. This seed bank that we had, this little mini diversified seed bank, and it was seemingly this tragic thing, And, and it was a tragic thing, certainly. Matthew Dillon and I had, that winter, we had a seed growers conference it was at least 35 40 people that came from all over the west coast and a few from the east coast and from the midwest good old and rockies that were really committed to growing seed and who had the vision of we have to start growing our own seed we can't just rely on large production companies we were planting the seed of that idea of having diversified alternative smaller seed growers. And I don't know if we ever documented all of this. It took two or three months, but we decided we really needed to start a new nonprofit that was much more inclusive of teaching people all of the technical basics and the logistics of having a seed company or being a grower that produced seeds for a small diversified seed company and having them grow things that may be outside of the the mainstream of modern agriculture. The original idea was we have to train seed growers how to better do this and how to really incorporate it into the modern organic food movement that was catapulting that was moving at such a fast stage and seed was lagging behind. And I have to say that Michaela Colley and all of her colleagues at Organic Seed Alliance who are still there, they've done a fine job all of these years, still training people, holding conferences, really doing a fantastic job. The legacy moves on and they just expanded it. Why do you think everyone should know and care about the collecting, storing, and planting of the seeds that are used in the production of the food they eat. Stefan, the neatest thing about all the reflection I've done the past couple of weeks thinking about us talking has really made me realize more than I ever thought about it before, the seed is just a stage in the plant's life. It's the little carrier between generations. 
but there's no just one generation of any life form. It's generations that unwind through time. So seed is a reflection of the plant. So if you care about the food you eat, a seed is just a reflection of that food you eat. It's the encapsulation of that food you eat. The seeds truly do reflect not only the plant itself, but the way that that plant has been bred, the way that that plant was produced to be a food crop, the way it was nurtured, the kind of fertility it has given, the, the climate that it comes from. Seeds are essentially just, in essence, just a little, just a little snapshot of the plant in its, in its ever unfolding life. How important is diversity in seed production? Or is it all about conformity? Is there a pure seed? This is a wonderful question. We'll take a little time to answer. So one of the challenges of modern agriculture that's, that's widely recognized by many good plant breeders, geneticists, certainly good farmers, always farmers. Farmers are always the smartest on all of these things of anyone. One of the things that has been questioned for a number of years now, starting in the latter half of the 20th century, in plant crops is, were we getting too uniform? Were we getting too genetically narrow? I stand on the shoulder of giants. I didn't come up with this. Well, one of the things we know as a plant breeder, and this is one of the ways to build in diversity, I always start, all good plant breeders do this, when I'm making a cross to combine two different kinds of onion that I really like. One has really great skins and stores well and is tough. Eh, it doesn't taste as good. So now here's another one that tastes better and truly has a beautiful shape. Just simple traits kind of predominant traits that I think about. So I make a cross between those two different kinds of onions. Now it then takes several generations of me selecting and doing the breeding process. After several generations, I get something that's uniform enough that the farmer that grows it can say it stores well enough that by March, 90% of them will still have stored properly. The skins are good and tight and they taste good. Boy, pretty darn good. But to what degree do I take it in the uniformity where I get the genetics reduced to a very narrow gene pool? And so what I learned many years ago is I want to keep as much diversity from those two parents as possible in there. I want uniformity. I can hopefully encapsulate the best things from both of those but don't be overly reductionist in taking that thing down to a narrow little clonal being that is, is too narrow to withstand the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. After all the time you have spent studying seeds, do you consider seeds to be sacred? I've just listened to one of the most wonderful lectures. It's the Massey Lectures, a Cree Indian named Thompson Highway, 
philosopher, poet, musician from way up north in northern Quebec. And he was talking about how coming up through his own religious tradition of the traditional North American ancestors and also being brought up as a Catholic, how he said one of the biggest differences is it's not just the trees, it's not just the animals of the forest, but it's also the water in the, in the creeks and the stones and the wind filling my nostrils and making me breathe to make my heart move. All of those things are spiritual. So yes, seeds are absolutely spiritual. And what he made me think of when I heard that was, Oh my God, well, think of that. Where does the soil come from? It comes from the rocks. Of course, it's spiritual. Where does the water that all plants need to be able to grow come from? It comes from the running water. So spiritual isn't just in animated biological entities or in human ancestry. It's in all things we find in the universe, the sunlight, the the wind, the all of those things contribute to the plants and the seeds are, again, just an encapsulation of that one being that's rotating through all of time. And you bring that to work every day. But no, it's just the way I feel about it. When I pick up seeds in my hand and plant them or clean some or think about which ones I'm gonna plant to make a cross, I think about it when I feel the sun on my face. Even when we're out there in November, digging up the last of the collard greens to put them in the greenhouse to overwinter them for next, so they can make seeds next year. I think of it when I'm digging through the soil, when I've got my hands in the soil pulling up the carrots. I feel it in a very, and uh, just a very deep level. It makes me feel part of it in such a way that that's why I love the work so much. And I realize it's the seeds aren't just the plants. It's not just an encapsulation. It's that earth they grew in. It's that without that sun, they can't grow. Without that wind, they would be weaklings out in the, in the field. Is there one thing about seeds about the world of seeds that you wished everyone knew? Of all your questions, Stefan, this is fantastic. And I thought about this one the longest. Again, and I believe I've said this before, but that seeds truly are just a reflection of the plant for which they are the, the primordia, the plant that they came from that grew the seed the plant that will emerge from that seed, and they're a reflection of what is so good about that plant. What is it that gives you a tomato that tastes so delicious on a hot summer day? What is it about the carrot that you cook into a stew in the middle of winter? What is it about the people who first took those wild, ancestors of carrots that were pretty woody and pretty toothy and was not in the class of what we'd call a vegetable today and saw the, you know, envisioned that that would be food. And if they just picked the best ones and saved the seeds from the best ones, it would keep getting better. 
to see the reflection of that whole ancestral chain, both of the plants and of the of the people that have brought us to it. And lastly, what it can be in the future that it may not be today. How can that become even a better reflection of the future? So simply put, how do seeds germinate? How do seeds germinate? And I really had to go back and relearn a little botany. You know, it's all in there. Gee, I'm growing seeds, you know, year round, every year for oh, at least 40 years now. But it's magic and it's so neat to uh, study the basics of it. Seeds are formed by, it's actually a sexual process in plants. In the true flowering plants, almost all crop plants are from true flowering plants, the angiosperms. The true flowering plants have separate male and female parts. Some plants have both. Some plants are dioecious, and in spinach you only have male plants and female plants. The asparagus farmers out there that are listening to this, or even the pot growers that are out there, will know what I'm talking about the same And in those crops. So you can have plants that are binary as far as male and female plants. But when a seed is formed, it is, it's a very elegant, beautifully augmented process of taking pollen and taking this ovule, taking this ovary. The, the female part has an ovary and it has an ovule within. And the pollen from the male sexual organ, the anthers, has to land on the stigma, which is the female part of the flower, and it actually germinates. It's actually a whole nother life cycle of the plant. So it germinates and it grows a pollen tube, just like a little plant growing, to reach the ovule. It's a whole life cycle. And it's delivering two nuclei, two nucleus cells, one that fertilizes the egg cell, and it's actually called a sperm nuclei that pollinates the egg nuclei in a plant. And the other one, and this is part of how a seed forms and how a seed grows, to have a really good seed, you grow endosperm, which is the food of the future for the seed when it germinates. So another sperm nucleus pollinates the um, endosperm. The two of those, the egg and the, and the sperm cell become a zygote, and then the sperm cell and the endosperm, nu two nuclei there, become a triploid food repository. And then it has a hard little shell around it, a nucellus, and it has then an even harder shell around the outside, which becomes a seed coat. And it's an amazingly quick process. It can happen anywhere from 30 to 90 days at the longest. And you then have an encapsulated little creature, a living creature, a living, breathing, respiring, very slowly creature, that can live on for years, that is a seed. And it encapsulates it and protects it in such a way that when the plant sh 
sheds that seed, whether it's in a fruit and it's in a fruit and a bird comes along, eats the fruit, and then poops it out miles away in the little bit of compost to grow the next cycle, or whether it just falls on the ground around the plant, or whether us humans come and pick it up or harvest it and move it to another field. The seed then is very, very sensitive to the growth in the next stage of life because it doesn't want to start growing until it knows it can firmly become rooted in the earth and become a full-formed plant that will succeed in fulfilling its life cycle. So if seeds fall on the ground and you're in a winter climate like New England today, it's got to sit there for several months, even if it goes through 20 below Fahrenheit weather, even if it gets frozen in the snow, even if it sits out in the sun for weeks at a time and it gets warm in the spring and it's baking in the sun, it has to live until it's down in the soil. So often seeds of many of the true flowering plants, the angiosperms, are dormant. Whether you put it in a dry envelope and put it in your, uh, your kitchen pantry or whether it sits on the top of the soil or whether it sits in the Johnny's warehouse for the next two years before it's sold, it's got to sit there and just wait for the perfect conditions. So a seed to germinate then needs to be, it needs to have water. All seeds of true flowering plants need to have water. All of the crop plants we eat, almost all of them, they need to be at a temperature that's favorable for growth. Physiologically, they can completely perceive this in their little being, their little live being. A seed is a living creature. Some people don't get that. They think it's some little dead vessel. It's like, no, it's completely alive, breathing alive for years to come. And then it's got a preformed little, little form of the, the meristem tissue that is the root, that is the stem. In some cases, the first leaves, the cotyledon leaves, are there formed. That endosperm I was talking about, it stored all of this food because all of a sudden, physiologically, it's got air, it's got water. In some cases, it has to have a little bit of light, even if it's a half an inch under the soil. If it doesn't see light, it will not germinate. It won't imbibe water and germinate. And it has to have oxygen. And with those ingredients, with those naturally forming things, it says, okay, got a little oxygen because I go through these oxygenation processes. Got enough water to start to grow, to divide cells. And it truly germinates and it cracks open that shell and it sprouts out and its, its root naturally goes down and its stem naturally goes up and it seeks the light, the light, the light, the light, right from the beginning. And it's a, it's a wonder of nature. How important do you see seeds in our relationship with plants in our path towards the future. The wonderment of agriculture spreading as quickly as it did. We have very little archeological record 
truly how and when agriculture started. People first thought, well, agriculture is only 10,000 years old. That's what I heard when I was first in college. Then they moved it up to 12,000 or 13,000 years ago. Now it's pretty normal for people to say at least 15,000 years old. And the other thing that was really interesting is they would, people have spent a lot of time thinking about how in the world did seeds get from Asia to Europe in relatively short periods of time when they are able to go back on some sort of archaeological or anthropological or, or historical notation. They, they're always amazed. Seeds are important because they're a carrier. They're, they're in a, you've basically taken an encapsulation of that plant, of the, of the whole life form, and it's DNA, of course, but it's, it's more than just the DNA, but you have this encapsulation of it. And seeds can last for 10, 20, 30 years if they're stored properly and still germinate. So seeds are this encapsulation that you can take. You can travel far distances. You can keep and put away for a better day, for a more favorable time and place. I think what's really important about seeds, biology is amazingly flexible and has this evolutionary adaptiveness that's truly quite remarkable. I'm going to shift things a bit. As you know, for some time, large agriculture has used the mantra that they are feeding the world. Can you address this myth and talk about how important the small farm is and how seed companies are really trying to shape and improve food production in the future? Absolutely. I believe that for humans to truly survive in this old world, we're going to need a relocalization of many of the fundamental things that are important in our life. I think we've proven through many tragedies of modern life that having a concentration of many of the essential things that we need to live, food being perhaps the most important, is dangerous and puts us on a thin rope. Certainly, if you concentrate too much of any one food in one supposedly ideal climate or a climate that's a little cheaper to produce it in, you've added in all of this, basically all of these things that can go wrong getting it. The flexibility, having been involved in small-scale ag, small and moderate-scale ag, I don't want to just make it about small farms. I work with a lot of farmers that are 100 acres. It may seem big, but it's, they're often diversified. They're, they're based very ecologically soundly in the climate they're working in with the diversity of crops and livestock. It just, it just takes out so many of those tenuous ripples in the supply chain that can happen if it's all concentrated, not just in another part of the continent you live in, but on the other side of the world. So the beauty of, of the kind of plant breeding that 
I like to do that's really geared more to regional expertise. And it doesn't have to be solely this way where you're catering to just one region. Johnny's is a great example, the company I work for, having our 50th uh, anniversary this year, 2023. But on the early catalogs, it was for the North. Having a perception of what really is the kind of climatic limitations that your customers have is, is really important instead of trying to breed one size fits all. The ability of, of just local economies to be based on, on something that's supportive and interrelated is always going to be the most sound and the most resilient part of this whole thing. And certainly, I think about my growers all the time when I'm reading carrots that are good right into November, even when there's a little snow in the ground in Maine, or collard greens and kale that can be cold hardy right up through the entire winter for some of my, my good customers down in the Mid-South and the lower Midwest. I love the idea that they can grow those year-round, or we can even grow them here in New England undercover year-round. How complicated is plant breeding? And can you talk about what you do at Johnny Seeds and how important that work is? Here is where the two aspects of my life's work that are linked and also how, to some degree, they're separate as, as a plant breeder. So a plant breeder, I'm developing new, better breeds of plants. What I see as the important work I do at Johnny's, I'm trying to come up with an onion that stores better, has a tighter skin, has a nice stronger skin, keeps for months, and tastes pretty good and is resistant to a number of diseases out in the field. So none of those things directly are associated with growing seed. Seed then, for me, is kind of the afterthought. Oh, we've got a good onion. This one's looking good. So I have to find good parental material. I have to find the things that really work for the kind of farmers that I work for. Now at Johnny's, we have a very interesting customer base, because we still have a very large percentage that's for farmers. I love those folks, and I want to make their lives better. But we also have a very enthusiastic, very hardcore, really small farm, or home garden, or small business. We think about all of those folks. It's got to be good for home gardeners. It's got to be good for farmers. So I really have to get to know what the people that I'm breeding these crops, how they're going to use them, what they need, how good does it have to taste, do they care, are they frustrated? Even more important, and it's always, this is the balancing act in plant breeding, it's like juggling balls. Every good trait, every important trait that you're trying to incorporate into a new breed of onions is like a ball that you're trying to juggle. And there are only so many balls you can keep in the air at one time. If you try to juggle 12 balls, that's too many. I can juggle seven or eight balls, but I can't juggle 12 balls. So I have to pick out what are the most important traits. So when we harvest that seed, that seed is not just that onion that I just grew. 
that seed is where I know it's several generations of ancestors that I've been working with come from. You got to know from whence it came and you have to know where it's going. I hope you enjoyed this episode with John Navazio. And if you want to learn more about seed production, do check out his book, The Organic Seed Grower. Nature Revisited would also like to thank Johnny Seeds for sponsoring this episode. And I hope you will visit them at johnnyseeds.com. If you enjoyed my conversation with John, please share with family, friends, and colleagues. Follow Nature Revisited on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or on our website, nordenproductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, productions.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature. Nature.